Could you all pray with me briefly? God, how good it is to know that you delight in us and that you have called us here to delight in you. Lord, we worship you. Help me today to trust in you completely and to speak. To speak. To proclaim your goodness your good news today. We thank you for this time. Open all our mouths and worship to you. In Christ's name, amen. So, you know, Jesus, when he was baptized, after he was baptized, he was led someplace. Now, the place he was led, you probably think, oh, you get baptized, why would the Spirit lead him to the wilderness. But that's where he was led. The Spirit leads him to the wilderness. Do you know why? Because he was going to have a battle with the devil. And while he was there, the devil tempted him three times. Yeah, three times. The first time the devil said to him, no, I forgot to tell you something very important though. He was fasting. That means he wasn't eating for 40 days. Like, yeah, you get really hungry and really, you're, everything in you is just gone. But for 40 days he was fasting and the devil said to him, look, there are stones. Now Jesus, you do miracles, you can do all kinds of stuff. Turn those stones into bread. And do you know what Jesus said? He said, it is written. That means in the word of God it says, it is written. Okay? Man shall not live by bread alone. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't need just bread to live. No, I, what I need, it says, Jesus but shall live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The word of God will feed me, not bread. So then the devil thinks, oh, I gotta get this guy, Jesus. So he takes him, he lifts him up, right? And they go to Jerusalem, to the temple. And he takes them to the highest part of the temple. And he says to Jesus, throw yourself down. Can you believe that? What's going to happen if you jump from the highest point of a building down? You're going to die. But then Jesus says, it is written. It is written that the angels are watching over you, are concerned about you. So much so that when God lifts you up, your foot does not hit a stone. That means you are so high. 
right? It's like sometimes I imagine like a bird, like Lord of the Rings, the bird's carrying me, right? And you're so high that your foot, because if someone's carrying you and then they're careless and you hit the bottom of the, a stone, that's going to hurt. You're going to hurt yourself. But not even that's going to happen to you. That's how high he will take you, will protect you, swoop you up so that you don't die. And then he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know, you don't, you don't test. I mean, test. You do not test God. That's like you testing God to see if he's going to come and save you. No, no, no. We don't do that. So then the devil thinks, <sighs> takes him to another place. He takes him high on a mountain, really high on a mountain. And he says, look at all that. Look at everything in this world. You see all these kingdoms, all these people, all this, this riches, all this grandeur, all this stuff. All the things you would ever want in life. All the games you would want for some of you guys. All the toys, anything. Bow down and worship me, the devil. And I'll give all of this to you. And then Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only and serve him only. Go away. He tells the devil to go away. And then that's how it ends. The devil goes away. I have a question for you kids. What was Jesus using as his weapon? What, Logan? What? The Bible, the Word of God. We talked about all the different parts of the armor. I mean, these are all great things. I mean, things that protect you, right? Let me tell you something about the shield. Do you know what picture I have of you guys using the shield? I see a picture of Jamie taking her shield, and not only shielding herself, but using her faith to shield Matthew. So if something's coming at Matthew, Jamie's the one who's going to stand there and protect him, because her faith is strong. Yes? Yeah. Just the same. All these things that are given to you by God, because you have to remember this, and this is what I want you to remember. God has given you all you need. He has given you everything you need to stand strong and firm. Everything you need. You just have to do your part and make sure you wear it. You have to remind yourself that you have all the things that you need. Because God has given it to you. But of all the pieces of the armor, the only thing that's really a weapon, something you could fight with, is the Word of God. And if you want to use it, you sure better know what it says. <laughs> you need to read it, to love it. And as you read it and love it, you're going to taste and see that it is good. And once you've tasted it, you can never go back. 
You can't go back after you know it. Okay? So do not forget that God has given you all that you need. All of it. It's so easy to forget that. But God has given you all you need. So I want you to look around you. Look around. I want you to know, not only did God not abandon you, who gave you other soldiers, you are not alone. The friends you have, the people who say that they too believe in the truth, all those who say that the Lord Jesus is their Lord, their God, they are all on your team. You are not alone. So look at everybody and tell them we're in this together. Okay? God's word is living, it's alive. That means you are living, you're alive when you use it, when you wield it. You have the ability to make things come alive. This weapon isn't to kill, it's to bring life. It is not for you to slash people, but to get at them deep inside so that you could cut away things that don't belong so that they could be alive. God's word is living and active. Okay. So, I want you to pray with me. Pray with me. Gonna open them, shut them. Pretend you have a sword. Raise up your mighty sword! Open them, shut them. We fight with God's mighty word. Okay, let's pray. God, every time we think about how much you love us, from the beginning of time to even now, even though we're like a blip, how much you love us, we cannot help but fall to the ground and worship you and say, you alone are worthy of all our praise. Lord, I ask on this day that you would bless the children, whether little or 93, though we don't have a 93-year-old here, Lord, that you would bless your children with your spirit, that you would remind us each and every day that you have equipped us, completely equipped us, that there is nothing lacking in us that we can go out and be active and living agents of your good news. Take us wherever we go. Let us be your ambassadors. Let us be the ones who tell everybody, look up, lift up your eyes. Help us to be those people 
I ask that every seed that you have planted into each and every one of the children's hearts, Lord, that you would grow it. Lord, we pray as a church that truly they would grow up to be oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. So God, bless them. Bless this congregation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, kids, I need for you to go. Uh, very Our scripture reading for today is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Listen now to the word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And he took up the broken pieces left over, seven basketful, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalamanthua, the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you uh, once again. Uh, for this time that we have together to worship, to hear your word, to lay before you uh, all of our burdens. And we ask that your spirit would once again speak into our hearts and that in the hearing of your word, we would find our lives and obey. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
Everyone knows all about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, the feeding of the 5,000 has the distinction of being the only miracle performed by Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. Those who were there with him during that miracle were so impressed that they wanted to forcibly make Jesus their king. It's a stunning miracle. And afterwards, Jesus himself makes an important claim about his identity and mission. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And then he confused and scandalized nearly everyone by adding, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It's a popular text for preachers. You might remember that during one summer a few years ago, we had two guest speakers and both of them preached on the feeding of the 5,000. Of all the texts, in the Revised Common Lectionary, it appears in two of the three annual cycles. In contrast, today's reading of the feeding of the 4,000 might be the least remembered, the least popular of Jesus' miracles. It does not appear at all in the Revised Common Lectionary, and it rarely gets preached. I don't recall ever preaching on this text myself. It's like the forgotten middle child of meals, stuck and lost between the first and greater feeding of the 5,000 and the last supper, the intimacy of that last meal. Its forgettability is understandable. If it never happened, if this story were excised from the Bible and we still had the feeding of the 5,000, none of us would think any less of Jesus. His power would in no way be diminished. Jesus can feed the 5,000. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think that he could have fed 4,000 as well if he wanted to. So for many, this passage and this miracle seems kind of redundant and unnecessary. According to the Gospel of John, there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even all the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we know that the Gospel writers had an incredible amount of materials, of miracles and stories that they could have included into the scriptures. And among all those choices, Mark, as well as Matthew, chose to include this story because they felt it was somehow important enough, that it was not mere repetition. Why? Well, right before this miracle, in the second half of chapter 7, we are told that Jesus is in the region of Decapolis. That is, he's in Gentile lands to take a break. He wants to be left alone. But he's a celebrity. He can't escape the paparazzi. And news of his presence spreads through the towns. One woman approaches him and repeatedly asks him for healing for her daughter. 
And Jesus says one of those things that you're kind of surprised that Jesus said it because it sounds offensive, bigoted. He tells her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus appears to be likening her daughter to a dog and refusing to help this Syrophoenician Gentile woman because he only has so much bread for the children of Israel. In fact, in Matthew's telling of this miracle, Jesus explicitly says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In our modern sensibilities, we would say that the woman had every right to call out Jesus and to be angry with him. But instead, she turns Jesus' own remarks back on him and respectfully responds, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table get some of the crumbs from the children. She recognized in her incredible faith that even the grace of crumbs from Jesus would be enough because Jesus is the bread of life. And Jesus is so impressed with her response and her faith that he heals her daughter. And not only that, this may have been a turning point in Jesus' life. He was the, among the Gentiles to get away, not to do ministry. He was there on vacation. But after this conversation with this woman, he heals others. He heals a man, for example, who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And again, in Matthew's telling, the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Miracle upon miracle upon miracle. Why? Because this woman asked for some crumbs. And that's why there's a crowd of about 4,000 people hanging about Jesus for three days in our reading. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is almost always interpreted as a sign of God's abundance for his people. That God is able to provide for all our needs, that there is more than enough to satisfy, and that such abundance is a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. All true. But in the feeding of the 4,000, in this miracle, Jesus demonstrates that there is not only an abundance for the house of Israel, but for the whole world. And the symbol of that abundance is the incredible amount of leftover bread. After the feeding of the 5,000, we are told that there were 12 baskets full of broken bread. After the feeding of the 4,000, there were seven baskets full of leftover bread. These numbers are probably symbolic, pointing to the 12 tribes of Israel in the first uh, miracle of the 5,000 for the people of Israel, and the number seven, the number of completion for the Gentiles and the rest of the world. But here's a little trivia question for you. In which of the two miracle feedings was there more leftover bread? In the feeding of the 5,000 with the 12 baskets, or in the feeding of the 4,000 with the seven baskets? Anyone? <laughs> You'd probably want to say 12, because 12 is bigger than seven, right? 
But actually, it's probably the 4,000. In the feeding of the 5,000, all four gospel writers are consistent and they use the same word for baskets, kofinas. But in the feeding of the 4,000, both Mark and Matthew use a different word, spudis, which is a different kind of basket. The K basket is a smaller basket. I think of it something like those large bags that, that moms carry. It's got snacks, it's got diapers, some extra clothes, some water, band-aids, right? It's, it's a pretty good-sized bag. But the S basket that's found in our story is like one of those expandable immigration bags that you take on international trips. You know what I'm talking about, right? So that's the difference. So in, in the feeding of the 5,000, you've got these sort of hand basket full of bread, 12 of them, versus in the feeding of the 4,000, seven, but it's these massive, massive, these really big baskets. In fact, the only time that this word is used elsewhere in the Bible is in Acts 9. And in Acts 9, the Apostle Paul has been preaching in the city of Damascus, and his enemies want to get rid of him. And we are told that they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Same word. It's the S basket. Paul escaped by being lowered through an opening in the wall in a basket large enough to hold him. So in the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 bread baskets full of leftover bread. But after the feeding of the 4,000, there were seven of these large enough to hold a man baskets full of leftover bread. That's Jesus's idea of leftover crumbs from the leftover crumbs. It's not just a matter of abundance. It's super abundance for everyone, for both Jews and Gentiles. The gospel writers all have their own way of telling us that Jesus Christ is the savior of the whole world, not just for the Jews. For Matthew, we can see it in the words at the end of his gospel, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, of everyone. For Luke, it's found in the words of Jesus in the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. For John, Jesus is the light of the world, and that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And in Mark, that Jesus is the savior of all people is demonstrated here in this engagement with the Gentiles in healing and in the feeding of the 4,000. So the miracle is not just an unnecessary repeat, but it highlights Jesus' very identity and mission and compassion for the whole world. Now, I uh, titled my sermon today, Leftovers, um, because thinking about this passage got me to thinking about leftovers. I have to tell you that as a child, um, I had the good fortune of growing up in a home where we had daily family dinners, and my mom was a really good cook. During most of the school year, I was usually the last one to come home, 
um, because I had um, soccer practice or other things going on at school. And so I usually didn't get home till about 5.30. And so I usually be the last one to come home. And so everyone would be waiting for me to come home so then we could have a dinner. And so I'd walk through the door and everyone would start heading up toward the dining table. And my first words usually when I came into the house would be, what's for dinner? Most of the time, someone would say, we're having this or we're having that. Um, but once in a while, my dad would silently do this. The first time he did that, I had no idea what he was doing. I thought maybe he didn't hear me, so I said, what, what's for dinner, dad? And my dad would just smile and he would say, this. He had, of course, explained this to my younger sisters, and so they're all laughing together because they're in on the joke and I have no idea what they're doing, um, right? My, uh, my pin got spiked, as the kids might say today. So I kept asking, well, what's for dinner? And my dad would try to break it down for me. He'd say, what's this? I said, what, your, your, your arm? No, this. Which side? The left side? What? And this? What? Waving? No. Not, but up what just tell me right and he just go through all of that over and over again until finally I say not down but up top over what we're having some people over what said no and then again he just go through it and it says left over <laughs> that's how I found out we we're having leftovers the first time I don't know about you, but as a kid, I never liked leftovers. For example, I didn't like having cereal for breakfast. Cereal for me as a kid was what you had to eat on Saturday mornings because your mom didn't make you a hot breakfast like she did Monday through Friday. I know, I was completely spoiled. <laughs> anyway, when I had to eat cereal, my choice of cereal was Lucky Charms. Because I didn't like cereal, but I did love those colorful marshmallows. They're magically delicious. <laughs> so whenever we got a new box of cereal, of Lucky Charms, I would open it and I would go through the cereal and take out all the marshmallows, or most of the marshmallows, and as little of the cereal as I could. That would be my first bowl of cereal. And uh, after that, my sisters would be left with the rest of the cereal. I would leave at least a few of the marshmallows. I wasn't completely evil. Um, that for me was leftovers. That's leftovers. It signaled for me leftovers, something inferior. When you had leftovers, it meant that there was something lacking. It's what you got when you couldn't get something better or new. It was the hand-me-down Kmart sneakers that you would get from your neighbor. It was the used textbook that you'd buy that had highlighting in all the wrong places. It's getting picked last in gym class for dodgeball. Not that that ever happened to me. It's when you order seafood pasta at the Olive Garden and your kids eat all of your seafood and you're left with pasta and mushrooms. It's throwing into a pot of Seppuro Ichiban ramen all the vegetables and meats that were left over throughout the week for Sunday dinner. It's dry turkey sandwiches for a week after Thanksgiving. Leftovers for me as a kid is what you ate because you didn't have something 
better. Now as an adult, what I've come to learn and to appreciate, and as the feeding of the 4,000 teaches us, leftovers are not a sign of lack, but a sign of abundance. The very fact that there are leftovers means that you had too much food to begin with. In fact, in the Greek, it doesn't even say leftovers. It reads literally, they picked up the abundance of the fragments, seven large baskets. Leftovers are a sign that God's love is abundant enough, not just for me, not just for my people, but that there is enough for the salvation of the whole world. That's a good reminder. But there's some more. Leftovers are not only a sign of abundance, but they're also an opportunity for something new and better to be created. For example, I know some of you like uh, cold pizza for breakfast from the day before. In my house, my wife will make blueberry muffins when we have leftover blueberries. She will make banana bread when we have leftover bananas with too many of those brown spots on the banana. And she will make kimchi chige, fermented cabbage stew, when we have kimchi that has fermented too much and is left over. Without those leftovers, we would not have those meals, right? She, she never goes shopping for blueberries to make blueberry muffins. She never buys bananas thinking I'm gonna make banana bread. It's the leftovers that allows us to have something new. Recently, one of my kids has been making a lot of fried rice at home. He or she would take the leftover rice and throw in whatever vegetables and meats that might be around to create something new for everyone. He didn't cook at all before. But now he makes fried rice every chance that he gets. And here's the thing. He always uses leftover rice. He doesn't make new rice for it, right? And in fact, I'm told that the, the leftover rice that's been in the fridge is actually better to make fried rice with. We need leftovers to create something new. I can tell you that during the pandemic, I have felt at times like I've been using leftovers to prepare sermons. As most of you know, I've not had regular access to any of the seminary libraries. And so I've my, I found myself having to write sermons without the benefit of the latest books, without the benefit of engaging with, with scholarship. It's like I had to use whatever ingredients that were left over in older books that I had in my house. It was like, I don't have butter, so I'll have to figure out some sort of imitation butter or a substitute. I don't have the latest Peterson, but I have some old Lewis. At times, this has been really frustrating for me, but at other times, it's forced me to be more creative, to let my imagination roam a little bit more, to reflect on nature and cicadas, for example. I think there's a lot more that can be said about leftovers, but maybe I'll save some of that as a sermon starter for next week. But there is one more thing about leftovers that I do want to leave you with. We aren't told what happens 
with these leftovers. We don't know what happened to these seven large bags of leftovers. Based on my experience, usually one of two things happens with leftover food. One is that some people take it home. So perhaps some of the people in the crowd, perhaps the people who brought those baskets, they got to take home that leftover bread. The other possibility is that the disciples kept it and they ate it over the course of the next several days. Either way, here's what I think might be the most important feature about leftovers for us this week. Leftovers are not only a sign of God's abundance, they are not only an opportunity to create something new, leftovers are a sign of incredible intimacy because you only eat leftovers with the people closest to you. Isn't that true? When you invite people over for a meal, you don't serve leftovers, or I hope you don't. <laughs> you cook something new, maybe your best dish. As an act of hospitality, you create something new. And you make lots of it so that no one goes hungry. It's a way of honoring your guests. Homemade food, newly and lovingly made, is a sign of your care and affection. And then after the meal is over, if you have leftovers, you might give some for your guests to take home with them, or you might keep it for yourself and you eat it over the next several days with your family. You don't keep the leftovers to serve for your next guests next time. You eat the leftovers with your family. That's the nature of leftovers, right? Nora Ephron once said that a family is a group of people who eat the same thing for dinner. I would modify it to say a family is a group of people who eat the same leftovers for dinner. That's family. In fact, I would say that a measure of how close you are with someone is whether or not you have eaten leftovers with them. When your family or someone who is really close to you, a close friend comes over to your house and they come regularly, you don't have to create something new all the time, right? You can just grab whatever's in the fridge. You can serve leftovers and you're both comfortable eating that meal together. There is a kind of intimacy reserved for those with whom you can share leftovers. Sharing a meal, especially back then, was an incredible and an incredibly important sign of fellowship, of friendship. So it was shocking that Jesus would essentially eat with everyone, with morally questionable sinners, with the despised tax collectors, with those ostracized Gentiles. By his eating meals with everyone, he was saying, everyone is welcome to the Lord's table. But it seems to me that it was with his disciples, his closest friends, that he ate those leftover meals with the broken basketfuls full of bread. And I think it's to that meal to which we are also invited. You know that the basic ministry principle, philosophy of this church, 
is rooted in the idea of companionship, that we are all called alongside to be one another, right? That that's what it means to encourage one another. Just as God in Jesus Christ, God who is with us, Emmanuel, even to the end of the age. You know that the word companion literally means to share bread with someone. A companion is someone that you share your bread with. That's a good word. But there is no word for someone that you share broken bread, the leftovers with. So for lack of a better idea, and I know this word doesn't sound great, I want to propose com fractopanion. <laughs> com fractopanion. As someone closer than a companion, someone who you share fractured or broken, fragmented bread with. As Proverbs 18:24 tells us, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's a confractopanion. Someone that you can eat leftovers with. And you know who that is? It's the church. Or it ought to be. Isn't the church those with whom we share the broken bread, the broken body of Jesus Christ? And in that sense, are we not confractopanions. When Jesus calls us to eat the bread that is broken for us, perhaps it's not just a symbol of the broken body of Christ for us, but it is also a reminder of the broken bread, the leftovers collected and shared and enjoyed in sweet intimacy with Jesus. My encouragement to you this week, as we wait for the time that we can once again share bread together, that we can once again share donuts in the fellowship hall once again, as we wait to share the bread of communion, the broken, fractured bread of communion. And as you begin to reopen your homes to invite friends and family to meals, I would encourage you to expand that circle of friends with whom you eat, to share your abundance with the Gentiles in your lives. And perhaps add one more person or one more family to your short list of those whom you can share a leftover meal. Please pray with me. Lord, in your hands, crumbs are more than enough. Help us to see in the leftovers in our lives signs of your abundance, of opportunity for creativity, and for the closest of intimacies. Help us to be big-handed with arms wide open in extending hospitality. Help us to be sensitive to new possibilities, even when it seems like we are only stuck with leftovers. Thank you for inviting us, not only to your abundance, but to the shared intimacy of the leftover bread. We thank you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.